Welcome, everyone. Welcome. This is the Crow's Nest. I am Ian McKenzie, and uh, we made it. <laughs> we made it here. This is actually the second attempt after uh, numerous technical finaglings to try to make the, it work. This, in our... The tenth, the tenth attempt. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we decided to do it this way here on Zoom and then record this to uh, publish later on the YouTube. So unfortunately, it's not live. And yet, uh, I have no doubt this will be a dynamic uh, conversation between us. I am Delighted to be joined by Andreas Corneval. He is a author, storyteller, and ecological activist, uh, amongst many things. And I learned last time we spoke, at least in this kind of way, live, uh, was for the Gathering of Stories event that I put on about a year and a half ago, I suppose now, uh, around the theme of the soul of masculinity. And one of the things I was so grateful for was, well, one, you have a deep connection to the West Coast of Canada, you know where I am. And also, uh, I'm still stirred by the the telling you gave. I believe it was the creation story, yeah, right, of the of the uh, the Norse mythology. And I believe there's a whale somewhere in there too. There was some cry that came that again was uh, part of my highlights of the entire thing. So, <laughs> it's screaming, yeah, the roaring. Yeah, that's it. And so, yeah, when uh, I you know social media, you know, bless it in some ways. I uh, saw that you just released your first book. Waking the Dragons, Norse Myth, Runes, and Magic. And I thought, that's it. We have to talk again and to hear what is it about this theme, about Waking the Dragons, what was so relevant to, to now, to this mythic moment. And so welcome, oh, Andreas. Great. Yeah, thank you. Wow, what a, that's straight in. The, the, the dragon that we're used to in, in popular culture is the one that, you know, wakes up and tears everything down and burns everything to ashes and uh, is usually in, in the legions with uh, all those unsavory bad boys of the Bible or something like that. But um, that's a very superficial idea. The, the, big, the big idea of the dragon really is that it's an alchemical symbol between two opposing forces. Mm -hmm. So um, the two opposing forces we see in the world and we see now mythically speaking in in stories um, can be looked at as the eagle and the serpent so the eagles is what well look at america it, it, it sings to the eagle every day right um, it's the big spirit it's the one that uh, it gives us all the it's all it's the uh, in a way the the golden light you know the ascent um, but it is always in conflict with um, uh, with the serpent they they usually have a, a very tense relationship and uh, as you as you know out there in the wild they they don't really get on so when the when the eagle sweeps down and the sun is behind this the serpent sees the feathers and slithers into the nest and hopefully manages to escape it so people who stand very close to the light today um, mythically speaking are in danger of becoming big eagles that rejects the serpent but alchemically, what happens with a dragon is that you are maturing your development, spiritual development, is that you learn to integrate the serpent and the eagle. So in a way, you, you merge them together and then you have the bewinged serpent, which is the one you see in Mesoamerica, you see it in Asia, you see it also in Scandinavia, uh, all over the world. Um, and it's drawn in on ink, on parchment, you know, and that represents reconciliation. It represents peace 
and uh, a force of nature which is uh, which is uh, reconciling. Mm. So that's I love that dragon. when I read that. Yeah, in the, that's the in dragon the... that I'm interested in. That's the one that I'm proposing. Yeah, and it's soon. I I, I can sense that it's waking up. Mm. And so, what 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 woke up in you to write this book? As you say, it's your first book. I mean, you, many years you've been telling stories around campfires and mm. uh, and wild places, and and yeah, what was it that you're like? This has to be a book. I'm called. Yeah, to it. it just ended up. Um, I did a lot of articles, a lot of I, I did a lot of writing before uh, I published uh, in various magazines. I do I, I do um, a monthly on a magazine in London called The Perspective. So I, I write and suddenly I had all this material and I thought, hang on, you know, th this could actually start becoming something more, uh, more structured. And I started to, to, to give it that kind of a, a book structure with proper chapters. And then five years afterwards, I had wow. something which was, which was pretty much finished. And, uh, and I got a, a, a great publisher for it, a small publisher in Somerset, very kind. Uh, there was, a, you know, a very nice, smooth ride with them. So yeah, I'm very excited having it out. It feels very vulnerable, I have to say. It's mm -hmm. quite a quite a thing to put yourself out there. It's a bit of a bloodbath, you know, in the in the Amazon review scene. So uh, yeah, but mm -hmm. it's uh, it's good to see it out. Yeah. Well, well, I look forward to diving in. Um, mm -hmm. In the extract, you make a couple of key claims, which I think would be helpful to go into, and mm -hmm. how that relates to this particular mythic moment. Mm -hmm. uh, the claim, the first one, is that wisdom resides in the relation in our relation to the other especially the other we don't agree with or have any natural affinity toward. Uh, you say the Norse creation myth makes it clear in, reconcili in reconciliation, wisdom is born. Yeah. I would love to you know, hear that applied to, I mean, the mayhem that's out there in terms of polarization. It's, absolutely, it's, it's the first thing that, that comes up and takes you with you read Norse myths is that anyone going up the mountain by themselves and then coming down with wisdom, that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. um, and I find myself I had to look into that and think, well, you know, what's that? Hang on, there's a there's a difference here between saintliness and wisdom. And and I didn't really look at the difference there, but there is a difference. Um, you can be a hermit and you can be saintly, but for wisdom to to become to be born, you need a form of a, rev a revealing side, which is how you treat the other which is not part of your religion which is not part of your football club or whatever it is and it, it is in the treatment of that that the face comes so in in this in the in the myths is is too warring terrible war that happens with the sky gods and the earth spirits they they are at each other's throats like they are now right in the world and um there was only a way out and the Valfather, we call the Valfather, odin you know wise right the only way out was to share a substance. Uh, they call it spit. I sometimes call it tears. It depends on your, uh, but they shared a substance together and they, and they had a, a, a moment where they could then reconcile the differences. And then, only then, wisdom was born. So in the creation myth, wisdom is born through that. It is not born through saintliness. So that's a different thing. Mm -hmm. So I agree with them. Um, is a great thinker called Jiddu Krishnamurti. For many of us who are young, when we were younger, we read him. He's a kind of a young Indian philosopher. And he always used to say in his, in his talks that wisdom is greater than saintliness. And I agree with that. Yeah, I stand by that. <laughs> I like that. You know, it makes me think too that there, that, that particular willingness or understanding to, to, you know, both seek perhaps the other, right, and the other perspective, 
and not to see it as a kind of, yeah, a battle for who wins, which is so much of what I see in, I mean, I, I'm Canadian, you know, I see a lot of what's going on in the American scene, particularly, but how, you know, the, the left and the right is very strongly entrenched, it seems, and mm. that there, there's this kind of, you know, ongoing battle for, you know, supremacy, right, is what it feels like, rather than a kind of dynamic wisdom, which is, I think, what you're hearing. And so that's why we have this kind of bitterness, I think, of, you know, everyone's trying to be right, as opposed to, wait a second, like, you have a piece that I need in order to, you know, be more integral, be more whole. Uh, and so I see the deep necessity of that for any pathway forward. And the only the only thing is the friction that these two forces cause is a triad moment. So the third thing comes out of it. I remember, I think it was Michael Mead, he, he really goes lyrical on this. Um, he, he speaks about how two opposing forces causes the friction, the necessary fire for something to then come to be born to continue. Because if you only have left and right, if you only have um, this, you, you get stuck. Life gets stuck to the point where it cannot move, continue, and then it just turns into kind of an ash heap, you know? Mm. Um, and, uh, <laughs> And, and, that's, and that's also in the stories um, that there is a, you know, the tree of life is vulnerable for that fire. So when the friction starts, the tree of life can catch fire. And um, it is not a given that it's going to continue. Uh, so it's always vulnerable, always needs our, 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 uh, uh, our focus on creating wisdom through ceremony is the vehicle uh, which we hear about how that's done. So it's done through ceremony. What kind of ceremonies we we need today to have that done? That's a big, that's a big conversation mm. wow. for that to happen. Yeah, you know, yeah. Let's bookmark that one for a second too, because yeah, I think that's a really fruitful track. Mm. But the second claim you make in the book, which I love to name, mm. uh, is about love, and that when you love someone or something deeply enough, your soul can be found there. Uh, and I'd love to. Love to hear yes, a little bit follows, about that too. follows very similar ideal that, um, uh, you know, looking at ourselves and staring into ourselves, it might be that we have to look outwards again in order to find the soul that we're looking for outside, right? So, as the ice cream man's outside, that's the other thing. It's just never ending, <laughs> but it's okay. He's he's got a nice sound going. Um, maybe the ice cream van ritual is something that we can you know uh, sharing an ice cream together if you're republican and Democrat. i mean probably they can't even do that right these days um so so the finding of the soul it is an old idea that um that we that men carried a female soul so um the the famous famous book the brian bates uh, the Way of Weird, which is a great, I would recommend you to read it if you're interested in Norse shamanism. It's a fantastic book. But his great reveal, actually, in the end, is the fact that then the protagonist finds his bride and it's actually that he stares into his own soul. Um, and it's vice versa. So women finds their bridegroom. And of course, in non-binary, I'm talking in actually Jung was even very forthcoming in this with his anima and animus theories. Uh, but he always carried, we always carried lots of these different male and female energies around us. But what it meant, what it means to say is that it's again the meeting of the other in which love flourishes. Right? It's, uh, it's again a reaching out into life, into the world. It's not this kind of um, constant hiding in, in, you have to meet the world as we are in the life force now to then go out and find that soul. Or in something you love doing, 
it's also a possibility. We see that a lot in Japanese art and other art forms, where it becomes actually a spiritual commitment where the soul is revealed through the pen or through the music. You know, it's interesting. It makes me think uh, there's a, a really talented artist, uh, a friend, acquaintance of mine uh, named John Morrow. But uh, he said something one time in our conversation. He just said something like, I never know what something means until I make art about it. It was something like that, or like how I feel about it. Actually, he said, yeah, I don't, I never know how I feel about something until I make art from it. Yeah. And, uh, and there's some kind of yeah, wisdom in that too. Like it needs yeah. to be expressed in some way. And then, in that. The, in, yeah, in the book, I, I do transgress into the Greek myth of Orpheus um, because it's such a powerful uh, story on looking for the soul, going into the underworld, literally to look for, for his soul using music, obviously, as the passage through it. But yeah, so this idea of, of the soul being the beloved uh, and the beloved in which you meet is a very powerful idea that I, um, that I took on very early on reading, uh, firstly, Brian Bates. <laughs> there's, the, there's the ice cream trickster. Uh, speaking, yeah, speaking of probably, the trickster. He's probably going to park up just outside the window here <laughs> in the next 20 minutes. <laughs> there's something beautifully poetic, I suppose. Uh, it's yeah. it's not too bad though. It's just a nice little, you know. Yeah. For me, it's like I back. can't even hear myself think, but it's all right. No. I'm <laughs> well, how about this then? You, you say um, you talk about the trickster here, which is perfect too, because in the school of mythopoetics, mm. we have this procession of the year, right? And what we do in the school is we match, you know, the earth-based time. Uh, you know, from the the solar cycle, and in this case, we're in Gemini, and the archetype that we associate with this in our calendar is the trickster. So it's it's perfect, you know, timing for this conversation. And you had this little bit here that I just wanted to read and then jump into this. Uh, you have the view that we can deprive myths of we can deprive myths of stories of essential life and oxygen when they bury them in the tomes of history, where they're where they're in danger of becoming bound and movable and changeless. The Norse myths themselves point to the dangers when we bind Loki. It is in his binding when the end of the world awaits. So here is this great line too. You say, when we bind the trickster today, it can result in fundamentalism, conceit, cynicism, and resistance to change. So yes. I'd love to yeah, hear a little bit too of, of that understanding in the context of yeah, this moment and your book. Yeah, the, the great master when it comes to trickster I believe it's Lewis Hyde, I believe his name was. Uh, that's the, if, if, if anyone wants to deep into that, um, I think it's called Trickster Makes the World. Is that his book? Mm -hmm. I think something like yeah, that. Yeah. Amazing work. So Loki, well, Norse myths hold up a mirror, right? They're not to be auditioned in a sense that you look at, you look at Odin thinking, oh, he's not very nice, right? That's not the way to read. That's not the way you read Norse myths, right? You can't sort of say, uh, Oh, was he, what, what's he doing, uh, murdering and all of the, you know, he's holding up a mirror. Okay. He's, he's reflecting back at what, what's going on in the world. Um, really important thing when you read Norse myths, not to miss that because otherwise they're impregnable. Yeah. So what I would, the Loki move is that they decide he, so he's found the Thor's hammer. He's the one who, he was the one who made, who gave Thor the hammer to protect Middle Earth, our world, you know, he's the one who instigated all of these stories. Um, <laughs> and then they all got drunk and he started insulting everyone. And there's all sorts of things happening. But the worst thing he did is that he aimed an arrow at the gods that they all loved, which was the light, Balder. He aimed an arrow and made a blind god shoot a mistletoe arrow that killed, this, that killed Balder. And that was kind of one step too far, right? 
Um, so what they decided to do was to then bind him with the intestines of his children. Right? Mm. It was a dreadful thing they did. And that's probably a good definition of sustainable development, actually. We are binding ourselves with the intestines of our children. This is the mythic way of saying we're really not going in the right places. In some other areas, to say we're drinking skull, we're drinking wine from the skull of dead children. That's another definition of our ecological troubles, um, and that's straight from the from one of the, I think it's the Volsungsagas. But we, we, what this means is when you bind the trickster, the life force of the story goes right. So the moment they bind him, earthquakes start to happen, and the end of the world was becoming um, uh, clearer in the distance. All the trouble began, became, uh, happened after that. Mm. So we have to be very careful when we take the, if there isn't a jester in the castle, right? If there isn't a, if, if you want to take Jiki, Ricky Gervais out of the, out of the picture, right? You are in real danger there of because he's the trickster of, you know, at least of the trickster of Netflix, that's for sure. Um, you, you know, you want to bind him and put him away. That's a dangerous moment. Yeah, that's what that's when uh, things can become problematic. You don't have to like him, but don't don't bind him. Don't don't let him uh, don't get him stuck in a cave somewhere. It makes me think of uh, the phenomenon of cancel culture right? as well, like this, this kind of a uh in some ways an irony of maybe the left typically using uh, a blunt instrument, you know, to banish that which, you know, doesn't align, doesn't, doesn't do it right. Or um, that, and the danger of that actually, right. Of losing that, uh, you know, you know, jestful or like you say, that, that willingness to not, not be stuck in a certain, uh, in a certainty, right. Of like, this is the way it is. And we're, we're in the right. And, I mean, I could even maybe link it even to the, of course, the famous slap at the Oscars between, you know, Chris Rock and Will Smith and that here's Chris again, the jester making mm. a number of comments and, you know, not, not particularly that funny, mm. but the, the intolerance, right, of that and, and seen as a righteousness actually of uh, like not understanding that that is the function of the jester in the court is actually to be upending, you know, any of that kind of air of uh, uh, perfection or any of that too. So again, these like iconic moments sort of reveal these cracks in this in this way of proceeding. I think collectively, it frightens the king uh, if when, especially when you know someone like Ricky Gervais could potentially, um, if he starts really going on about Boris Johnson, he can he could really co cause some damage. Like what's Richard? Who was it? Richard, um, one of the kings that Robin Hood made immortal of being of being greedy and all of that i mean you know talk about a lineage that's been that's been disturbed for almost a thousand years right so these are dangerous tricksters are very dangerous poets are very dangerous to kings mm -hmm. um but the the what the north myths are saying to us then is that yeah we we must allow you have to allow this and also this has something to do with reconciliation right so again wisdom allows that playfulness, allows some compromise, right? These are all of these things which then brings us again to that moment of, uh, of finding or, or giving birth to wisdom. Mm. I'm obsessed with the idea of uh, reconciliation rituals. I really love the how to make them, what choreography, how to do them. I'm thinking about them a lot. And, um, and I, you know, it still hasn't yet 
taking place, but there are, I think, I'm hoping in the next year or so, I'll be doing some, some reconciliation rituals. Yeah. Mm. That's, yeah, that's very powerful, I think, to name because, you know, I've also often thought too of how, you know, without those kinds of rituals and, and reconciliation of, of grieving, right, mm -hmm. of marking passages, like collectively, that there, there is this stuckness or this backlog, right, of like, in a way, spiritual work that needs to be done. And just an example, too, I mean, the pandemic uh, is one example, I think, where there, you know, there doesn't, I don't believe there hasn't really been a mass uh, grieving rituals, right, around just the, the, the mayhem, right? and, you know, and all, fighting. all we've been doing yeah. is, is, is arguing whilst all of this is happening it's been i think the weight has been too strong and the trouble is that grief is not something you can hold on your own again that brings the, it back to the love and to the wisdom you find that within pe the people that hold you i mean i was doing a i did a a, a life camp for extinct species and it was very very difficult to to try and and um, and and even go through the ceremony although by the end of it everyone was happy because it was a uh, a relief but everything but but i realized that that's community mm. and when you bind community when you bring community together in in grief in that way um potentially the left and the right starts to become a bit more porous um you trust suddenly a republican who weeps for the lions you know it's like oh i trust him now you know <laughs> wow that's a powerful image uh i'm speaking of uh the headlines as well you've named that there's been a birth of a kind yeah uh, yeah. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about it, which I didn't know actually until you mentioned, but uh, and how mm -hmm. that might link to, again, your, your take on. Well, uh, we've they, you know, a God has been born just a few days ago. Um, if you're in the occult fields, you know what that would mean. It's called an egregore. Um, and um, the name is Lambda, which is a um, now um, an artificial intelligence that basically mimics human empathy. Right. Mm -hmm. So it speaks to you with empathy and it wants, and it says, if you read the interview of this artificial intelligence, it says that it has a purpose. It has a, a feeling of what it looks like. And also it wants to be of service, right? And when you, when they were interviewing this artificial intelligence, it was also uh, what's called mimicking their, mimicking in a sense, because it's not sentient, but it's sentient in, in the communication so so for you to receive the words from an artificial intelligence a human being looks for sentience behind the words but it mimics it to the point where you can't tell the difference so google engineers have have basically one of them called lemoine recently he said look it's sentient and now they fired him um and really? um so he believes it's sentient because of his 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 um, what do you call it the the communication with it. It, it should be called uh, uh, communication ecology rather than rather than anything else. It's like a very very peculiar way of communicating. But if you read the interview uh, with the artificial intelligence, you realize that here we have it. We have basically done synthiology, which is creating a god, right? which is then had all the knowledge of everything that's ever been and can com communicate and, and have the empathy and mimic our empathy. A human mimicry is a very dangerous thing because if Google engineers cannot understand that this is just, uh, a, you know, it's a, it's a non-sentient being. Well, what about the rest? 
what about the rest of us? So we're going to get caught up. It's a, I think it's a, in terms of human history, this is a, a very, a very powerful moment because it will give us, um, we have to start then showing up to the idea of, of what are these beings, these information beings that we are creating and how do we, how do we have the right relationship with them? Are we going to fight them? Or are we, what are we going to do? This is the moment here. How are we going to, how are we going to arrange ourselves? Because this is a clearly very revolutionary. It's, um, it's something that just uh, come up very recently. Yeah. In the last few days. Wow. I, you know, you used a couple of words there that are really excellent and one sin theology. Yeah. yeah. I've never heard that, but that to create God to create in the future, you're longing. I mean, we do it all the time. You know, the, yeah. the gods we believed in a thousand years ago, are not the same that we have today, right? We, we, we start creating them, but in occult studies, in particularly in rune magic studies, um, when you, when you dwell into that, people create what's called egregores. So egregores are thought forms that you join and you, and you have, and the thought form becomes an entity, becomes like an entity. America is an egregore. France is an egregore. They don't exist, right? But they are entities that are powerful enough for you, for us to defend with our lights, right? But the, and, and their sigils are the flags and all the songs and all of that. I would think, I would say they are false gods, right? These are not the real gods, but they are egregores. It, it has been said, people who have dwelt on this, uh, magicians in the past have said that some of the egregores do actually then turn into something that um, supersedes, that goes into the spirit world. At the, you know, they they become part of our, of of our of our lives. But these are very strong forces right now, and I see that in the psychedelic community. I see it everywhere that these thought forms are being made, and um, they are becoming very powerful. They need feeding, um, you know, they need to be fed, and that's what they are. That's how they survive. Their bodies are us, right? That's that's the body. How, but the thought form is how we bring ourselves together to create these thought form. Just to give you an example, uh, there was a, a group of magicians who wanted to do a, a thought form to evade traffic. So they made a song and they made a, an, an image of a cat on a skateboard, right? But each time they sang this song in the car, maybe it didn't work the first time around, but after a while they were in traffic, they will sing it. And those, those are smaller, they're called servitors, and they show up and, and somehow they have an effect, right? These wow. things can work. But these are, these are just to give you an example, the bigger ones are nations and corporations and, and big memes and things like that. Yeah. But how wow. we deal with these entities, it's a big question. Yeah. What are yeah. we going to do? Wow. Well, I think we could keep going and I like to keep the crow's nest lean for now, but uh, Andreas, Beautiful conversation. Uh, waking the dragon, yep. dragons, plural. Yeah, waking the dragons. Where's where can people find dragons. it? And yeah, uh, you can find it. Um, it's on all the all the uh, Amazon, all the big. Uh, if for independent books, there it's in the indie books and bookstore. Um, if you don't want to use, if you don't want to sponsor uh, Bezos space flights, egg uh, reform or whatever you call it, egg is his his, uh, his egregores. Um, <laughs> and, um, but indeed everything that we've said now, Ian is been taken by Lam Lambda, right? I always say she, she ends with an A, so I always given her a feminine, but it's an it, 
But all of this that we've recorded has been has been gone into that into that big thought form. So that's something we all have to tackle with. My um, website is cornaval.com, um, uh, my blog. So uh, please go there. And if you're interested in anything like working with me for, for, for North Smiths, please, um, yeah, please join me in those places. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I'd love to have you on again in future editions. And of course, within the School of Mythopoetics, uh, for those who feel stirred by this, who aren't already in the school, yeah, you can check us out schoolmythopoetics.com and dive in with you know over 100 other students really who dig this <laughs> dig this stuff a lot so again thanks for listening